I have with me a guest today that I have been wanting you to meet for quite a while because he is involved in helping Americans fight the false narrative that somehow law enforcement is the problem. And uh, and his organization does it in an incredibly um, real and participatory way. So I want you to learn about what they are doing. So you're the president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Tell everybody uh, what that is and uh, and what you do to help American law enforcement officers. So the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund is a, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We've been around for almost 30 years, uh, believe it or not. And we're founded by, you know, icons of, of the Reagan administration. Uh, Ed Meese, uh, former Reagan attorney general, was instrumental in getting us started. And a couple of folks that were working in the Reagan Justice Department and, and for just about the last 30 years have been law enforcement advocates. Uh, the, the, in, the, in the very beginning, really, the idea was just to be able to try to raise some money to support law enforcement officers who had been wrongfully charged. Uh, with crimes related to their work. And in most of those cases are, are use of force cases. Uh, and we have done that uh, very successfully for the last 30 years. In fact, are now currently supporting nine uh, law enforcement officers across eight cases. And the cases are all a little bit different, but most of those cases are criminal cases against police officers uh, and, and their use of typically use of force cases. And most of our cases are. Uh, and the other part of our work, as you alluded to, is we're we're also general advocates for law enforcement, for effective professional law enforcement. And so some of our work is in the policy and research arena. We've produced policy papers. We've done original research on topics like police attrition, the impact of Soros-funded progressive prosecutors, uh, and the impact of uh, Department of Justice consent decrees on, on law enforcement and, and, and many other topics. And you know, so we engage with the media, produce original research and, and the like to support law enforcement. So that's one of the things I wanted to talk about is, you know, we hear a lot from the current administration about federal consent decrees. And and when I talk to citizens, you know, they say, well, OK, if we have to have some federal oversight, um, I guess that's OK. But can you help explain to people what those consent decrees are and uh, and and sometimes the negative impact that they have? Yeah, sure. Uh, consent decrees are statutorily authorized by Congress. They allow the department, uh, empower the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division to conduct what are called pattern or practice investigations of law enforcement agencies. And this is distinct from criminal investigations that the Civil Rights Division might do into individual cases involving police. These are far-reaching, exhaustive, expansive civil investigations of law enforcement agencies where they're quote-unquote looking for what they call a pattern or practice of unconstitutional policing. Um, they, they sound innocent enough. I mean, I think to the general public, it sounds like, well, that's a good thing. We, you know, we, of course, we want our law enforcement agencies to, to conduct themselves in a constitutional way. And I think, you know, we can all agree with that general principle that yes, law enforcement should conduct themselves in a constitutional way. That all sounds great. The problem is, is that the Department of Justice has what seems to be a virtually unlimited budget for doing this. And once they come into a law enforcement agency, they look at every single thing and it it, it starts to grind the work of the agency to a halt. I mean, I'm not speaking about this in, in some theoretical sense. In reality, if we look at the cities where there are currently 
um, consent decrees, including New Orleans and Baltimore, uh, as two ex examples of agencies I'm very familiar with. Um, but then they propose additional consent decrees in new cities like Minneapolis and Phoenix uh, and others. The the consent the resulting consent decrees are so broad, so expansive, so in depth um, that they tend to make law enforcement officers turn away from law enforcement uh, because it it might turn conducting a traffic stop into a forty five minute paperwork exercise for or the Department of Justice monitors and, and Department of Justice Civil Rights Division to review. And uh, the I mean, I, you don't have to believe what I'm saying. Just look at the objective data on cities in, involving consent decrees, how long they stay in, how expensive they are, and what the impact is. And you can look at the impact at, at in a couple of different ways. One is uh, crime. What's the impact on crime? Look at what the, the crime rate was before the consent decree and look at what it is afterwards. Look at morale, look at police attrition. There's so many different measures you can look at and the impact has not been positive. You're absolutely right. Very often a, a uh, consent decree is a death knell for that agency because very often police officers leave and uh, and really the only positive Im impact they have is the consultants involved in them tend to get very wealthy and they're the ones who control whether their contract continues or not. And they don't make the public any safer. And I, I think that that is the, the biggest um, takeaway from these situations. Again, law enforcement, of course, we need oversight. And I think American law enforcement does a pretty good job of policing ourselves. But when the federal government steps into local law enforcement, it can be very problematic, can't it? Well, it can. And I mean, I'm just telling you, as someone who actually sat at the table and negotiated one of these consent decrees in Baltimore, that, uh, you know, the, the the attorneys from the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, um, you know, they're nice people. I, I got along with them fine. It's just their philosophy on the types of uh, the approaches that law enforcement should take to effectively combat crime and promote public safety were, in my view, um, completely wrongheaded and destructive. In fact, um, you know, uh, they, they were antithetical to any, really any form of what we would call proactive policing. In other words, going out and looking for people who are committing crimes and stopping them. Uh, they wanted to include all kinds of provisions in the consent decree that would, that would disincentivize that, that would actually make police officers not want to do that. And in some cases, even, even prohibit or severely restrict the ability of officers to make arrests for certain things like gambling, trespassing, disorderly conduct, resisting arrest as, as a criminal charge. And so it's clear that the agenda is to move policing away from policing. And the results have not been good. Um, even if you look at, you don't even have to look at the policing perspective of it. You can look at the, the uh, police accountability activists in response to, in cities where there have been consent decrees, are they're never satisfied with the outcomes from the consent decree. So they're not even seeing the types of improvements that they wanted to see in policing. At the, at the same time, crime increases uh, universally. Expenses are through the roof for the city. So uh, I guess the moral of the story here is, what if any positive impact is there in cities where there have been consent decrees in the past? And is there a better way? I mean, if we can agree that there are instances in which police, there are police departments that are troubled, um, I think that's true. I think there are cases where institutionally there are police departments that need help. And is there a better way for us to get help to more quickly turn those agencies around 
to improve morale, to improve their ability to fight crime, and and very importantly, to improve their the credibility that they have to the community that they serve, which is important. And I don't think consent decrees are in any way the best vehicle for that. I think they've proven themselves to be very ineffective. And I think there is a better way. And that's really the conversation we're trying to instigate is, okay, uh, we can all agree on certain basic facts, but we I think we have to really look at what we're doing now. Is it working? It's not working. It's counterproductive. Is there a better way? And I think the answer to that is yes. Another thing that we're hearing from the anti-police activists is take away qualified immunity and that will uh, make cops, quote unquote, behave. Talk about qualified immunity, because I don't think most people really understand what that is. So qualified immunity is just um, it's 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 got a complicated history. And there are there are those who argue that it's um, that it was it was created out of whole cloth by the Supreme Court in a series of of Supreme Court cases. You hear about it most often now when there are there are um, very strong you know, activist voices, anti-police, anti-law enforcement, activist voices that want to do away entirely with qualified immunity as it applies to police officers. Um, not necessarily as it applies to other government workers, which is a, a hypocrisy in itself, I think. But uh, they're targeting law enforcement officers, which, by the way, law enforcement officers are by far the most likely people to have to deal with the lawsuits that potentially offer some protection to them, qualified for which qualified immunity offers some protection. So qualified immunity, the idea is that it, gave, it gives protection to any government uh, worker, not just law enforcement, but including law enforcement, in a situation in which they're attempting to do their job and essentially in good faith. Um, they're doing it in a way that doesn't um, is not inconsistent with the law as they know it to be. So it's essentially, it's not exactly a good faith standard, but I mean, that's the best way to understand it is that the law enforcement officer is, is is basically operating within the scope of the law as they understand it to be, then they're protected. Again, for civil cases, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with protecting you from being charged with a crime for anything that you've done, but for civil cases. The interesting thing is that very a very low percentage of cases that are brought against police officers are actually dismissed based on qualified immunity, which to me has always raised the question of why the activists are going after qualified immunity so strongly, because it's not doing that much to protect law enforcement. They act like it's this magical shield for accountability when in fact, it really, it really is not. And even, uh, you know, some of the researchers that are on the other side of this issue will acknowledge that, that it actually doesn't protect, you look at the data, doesn't actually protect law enforcement officers the way it's probably intended to do. But it does in cases in which the officer, again, has acted in, in 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 good faith, tried to do the right thing, and tried to apply the law the way they understand it to be. Uh, constitutional law is complicated. Uh, there are always new cases coming out. And as long as it doesn't clearly violate the law, then the officer would would receive protection from, but it really doesn't come up uh, that much. And uh, it is the target of attacks. And I, the only uh, thing that I can attribute that to is that it, it it's an opportunity to mislead the public about the account ability systems that exist for police officers when you if you sell the public on the idea that there's this um there's this immunity that law enforcement officers have that other people do not have it is misleading it's actually not accurate at all and they never ever get into the weeds of what qualified immunity really means they just make it sound like well cops are immune from lawsuits and they can't be charged with a crime and, and this and that we, we know all of that is not true that police officers are regularly sued that rarely are those cases dismissed on qualified immunity? I'm ground. one of them. I've <laughs> yes. been sued multiple most times. Most police officers, I shouldn't say most, many police officers will be sued 
in the course of their careers. Um, and it's in, you know, here, here are the important things to understand. We, we when cops do something wrong, um, pretend, especially if it's malicious, we want them to be held accountable by some system, whether it's the civil system, the criminal system, or the administrative system. Uh, even, even police by and large agree with that, 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 um, like any other profession, you, you have to do, you're supposed to do your job correctly. However, because of the nature of the profession, you're going to be come into conflict with people. People are going to see the government as deep pockets and you're going to be a target uh, to be sued. Anytime, anytime you have a negative interaction or even a not so negative interaction, there's always the potential that you could be sued. We understand that uh, when we enter the profession that that could happen. We also understand that, or the expectation is that we'll be treated fair by the, fairly by the system, we'll receive due process, uh, we won't be treated less than just because we're law enforcement officers, and that we'll receive some protection from our employers, at a minimum, that they will provide legal counsel to us for any time we're sued in connection with the scope of our employment, that our employer will provide legal counsel. And if there should be a settlement or a judgment, that in most cases, the employer will pay that on behalf of the police officer. Police officers, you know, don't have the kind of financial resources to pay for settlements and judgments. Now, there may be an extreme case uh, where the officer's conduct was so egregious that they should participate in that personally. I agree with that. I don't have a problem with that, but it, that's not the regular case. That has to be the the far outlier uh, uh, case. And, um, you know, we unfortunately have seen a few of those uh, in the past, but uh, by and large, officers need to have the protections uh, from the system to be treated fairly like everyone else. Well, and if those protections are taken away, uh, we're going to, you know, we're already having a hard time um, retaining and recruiting police officers. I think that would be catastrophic to the profession. Um, you know, one of the other uh, issues that is in the forefront now, you know, we're at the, we, we've had three years of this social experiment of uh, de-policing, uh, de-incarceration, and of course, de-prosecution. And I think the, the most devastating of that is this de-prosecution that is sweeping the country, especially in the urban areas of the United States. Talk about, because you guys are involved in this very much, these, these George Soros installed prosecutors around the country, starting with Kim Fox in Cook County, Illinois, and how devastating they are uh, to this country, to our communities, and to crime victims. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, what I normally say is you know there are two fundamental flaws right now in our criminal justice system. One, you know, of course, is the de-policing, which has has been brought on by uh, so much anti-police sentiment that it's made it very difficult for police officers to do their jobs in, in virtually every jurisdiction. Can't recruit enough officers. Can't retain enough officers. We're in a very difficult place with, with respect to policing, but that's not the whole story. As you indicate, the other real big part of the story is prosecution. What happens when police do bring cases of people who are career criminals, who are violent, repeat violent offenders, and they're bringing those cases. Um, in many cities, they're just essentially being dismissed right away. Um, and not and and violent crime cases as well as, as nonviolent property crime, things like theft. I mean, look. How often do we see videos of people going into grocery stores now and just filling bags full of stuff and walking out with absolute impunity? And um, it's really not because those cities have made theft legal. It's because the prosecutors in those cities refuse to prosecute theft up to a certain amount. And those amounts have gone higher and higher and higher. And uh, we sort of trace this back 
to the approximately 70 prosecutors in the United States that are what we call Soros-affiliated prosecutors. So they're either directly funded by George Soros or one of his many interests, or they're part of the club. So uh, for example, there are some states where the campaign financing laws are fairly restrictive. I happen to live in one of those states in Maryland, uh, where only $6,000 from an entity or an individual can go to a, a particular political campaign. So it's not a great state for Soros. Some, many states don't limit that at all. Um, so they can just funnel you know, lots of money into any political campaign. But so there are other prosecutors in, in, in those states and in other situations where they get invited to the powwows that uh, Soros and his groups have, and they follow the, the guidelines, the, the decarceration, uh, progressive prosecutor guidelines. Uh, but there are about 70 of them out there. And the destruction, there's no way to overstate the destruction, uh, the, the destructive force that they've had. And the unfortunate problem is, is that the we're sort of in an echo chamber talking about this problem. The only people that seem to be paying attention are people who are involved in the system, in law enforcement, or otherwise are paying close attention to what's happened. You can't break through this narrative, this story about the Soros prosecutors. You won't see on the network, you won't see it on CNN or MSNBC or any of the other mainstream media outlets. Um, so many people don't know about it. even people who may be further left politically, but still want to see public safety. They don't even know this problem exists. And when they go in to vote, um, they're voting for candidates that in many cases are straight up decarceration, anti-public safety, anti-police candidates. And they don't even know it um, because because the you know prosecutor races are kind of down ballot. There's not often as much publicity. It's very, it's much easier to win an election with less money. And that's why uh, the source interests have targeted prosecutors. They have incredible discretionary authority. They can, it uh, doesn't matter how many laws the legislature passes, they can either enforce them or not. And they can do that unilaterally, apparently. And, that's and it also doing. doesn't matter whether the police put together a really fantastic case, right? And that's one of the things that, that we always are trying to emphasize to people is that the police can arrest every bad guy out there, everyone who is accused of committing a crime. But if we don't have a prosecutor who will work with us, it's the whole thing is pointless. And that also adds to the poor morale of law enforcement, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, how many times are you going to hit your head against the wall, bringing somebody in with a rock solid case of whatever, and then have the prosecutor's office say, no, we don't prosecute these cases anymore. And that's happening. I mean, that's re real world stuff. And 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 your your viewers and listeners who are in law enforcement or or uh, recently retired or close to law enforcement are hearing those stories. There's no question about it. And um, that you know, if you if you really had to rate it, I mean, I think that is like the number one challenge that we're facing as a as a as a community of people interested in pr protecting uh, public safety is, is this this prosecutor issue. And it just doesn't. No matter what we do to try to bring more attention to it, it doesn't seem to be breaking through in the mainstream. Again, people who work in the system are aware of this. They understand it and they're speaking out against it. But it's just um, it will only go so far, unfortunately. Jason, what is the end game, do you believe, um, for these activists and, and elected officials that want to destroy um, American law enforcement as it is and really destroy our criminal justice system? You know, I get that question a lot. And unfortunately, I, I have yet to come up with a great answer. I, I, try to, I try very hard to avoid 
uh, becoming a member of the tinfoil ad society and, and come up with, you know, these, these very elaborate conspiracy theories. I'm not a conspiratorial guy by nature. I'm asking but... you because I need an answer myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, and I say all that, all that prelude to say, really, I mean, I, I didn't think there was any coordinated. I, I, when I first started looking at this issue, I was like, well, you know, this is just one guy's view of the world or whatever, but it's hard not to look at this and, and to, and to not, conjure an image of a coordinated process to try to i don't know lead toward marxism or something i don't know but it is troubling it is obvious what the impact is it's not good it's very bad it has been very bad it seems like it's going to be very bad in the future um you know you've got the the biggest um probably the biggest bully pulpit in our country is the presidency right so if we had a president who was speaking out in a way pointing out how, how problematic this was there would be some, you know, I would be encouraged. Uh, but we don't have that. We've got the opposite. We got our president, unfortunately, uh, current president, is speaking um, in a very supportive ways about these policies um, and giving them credibility. And they're, they seem to be gaining more momentum than anything. And so um, the end game, I don't really know, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's an end game that any of us are prepared to accept. Um, and I think we, we really need to use our voices to bring greater, greater attention to this problem. It's a, it's a serious problem. It, 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 it uh, there is a risk of it upending our democracy as we know. It. Yeah, that is very well said. Uh, where can people find out uh, more about you and your organization? Yeah, so our website is uh, policedefense.org, uh, policedefense.org. We've got lots of information, um, our research projects, the cases that we support. We're also on uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the normal spots uh, that you can find us. Uh, Police Defense is our standard um, handle on those platforms. I tell you what, thank you for all that you do for American law enforcement. And thanks for spending time with us today. And if you'd like more information about us, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.